0: Hi, folks. This is Christian Haynes from Gamers with Glasses. I'm very happy to be joined today by Scott Brody, Scott's creative director at HeartShape Games. He's also co founder of the studio, along with Kate Brody. We're going to be talking about HeartShape Games' current game, now in early access on Steam. We are the caretakers, as well as the studio's more general history, which includes games like Brave Hand and Hero Generations. But first, Scott, can you introduce yourself and tell us just a little bit about your background in game development?
1: Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. So, um, yeah, I. Got started about 18 years ago, um, just, uh, you know, going to school for game development, uh, computer science, and then eventually getting a gig at uh, Microsoft Game Studios. First as an intern, where I uh, worked on an Xbox Live Arcade game called Aegis Wing. Um, And then that led to full-time employment, uh, where I was an Xbox Live Arcade producer and... um, designer, uh, spent a lot of time there working with independent developers, helping them get their games onto um, Xbox 360 at the time and and other things, uh, and kind of inspired from that and inspired by my own desire to kind of make my own things, uh, broke off and started Heart Shaped Games. Um, That was a little over 10 years ago, and since then, uh, we've been working on some of the games you mentioned at the top, um, Hero Generations, uh, Brave Hand game called High Grounds and now we are the caretakers. So uh, it's been a long journey uh, uh, kind of growing from smaller games to bigger games. And yeah, excited to talk with you more uh, about all that.
0: Well, that's wonderful. So that's interesting. You have this kind of background already working with indie games, even before you started your own indie studio, um, both as a producer and a designer. So that had to be, I imagine some really helpful experience in terms of going out on your own.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was, um, you know, I think it had always been in the back of my mind that I just wanted to be more hands-on with development and, and you know, uh, especially with that first experience being so great of working on Swing, you know, designing that from scratch, being able to release it and just trying to get back to like working with a small team uh, and, and building unique um, original games. And so um, seeing other developers do that, both with team sizes, you know, I worked with uh, you know, I think at one point I had like 12 developers I was working with at the same time. Uh, and, you know, th- those studios range from teams of two to teams of 20. And it was really very valuable to see um, those specific studios and how each of those handled challenges in different ways. And just seeing games released through the whole life cycle, you know, from from concept to, to release. And so that was definitely very valuable. And I definitely learned a lot from those folks and definitely, um, you know, built a small network of, of people who could help me, you know, instill sort of our, are uh, helpful guides as, uh, as I'm now running my own studio.
0: So you've got this kind of rich stock of experience, uh, producing as well as, uh, designing and programming, uh, and you think, okay, now is the time to go out, uh, start your own studio. uh, What are some of the challenges? What are some of the obstacles? What are some of also the sort of advantages you already have in your mind in terms of starting up the studio from your experience?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, from that time when I started till now, obviously, they're they're very different kind of landscapes. um, So I can kind of speak to then and now. Um, I think back then, I think what really sparked me feeling like I could actually do it was um, looking at some of the smaller Flash game developers, actually. Um, so um, what was the, I, I'm almost forgetting the name now. Uh, I was like an in, incredible machine sort of game. I, I don't know why I'm blanking on it at the moment. Um, uh, it's made by the Northways. Um, but in, in any case, uh, there were a couple of games coming out in the Flash game scene that were doing well, made by small teams. And it felt like, OK, that's like something I can accomplish. Uh, and that I could do on a small scale and hopefully then look for ways to scale it up. Um, And so I think I have, uh, you know, I I looked at the practical side of it, right? Of, okay, I think I can do this. And then I just felt like there was a need both personally and then a need in the market for games that had more of like a personal touch that were based upon, uh, you know, those uh, personal experiences where a lot of commercial games at the time with, you know, some, some rare exceptions were more generalized, popular, casual type games, or or big budget AAA things that were were more about the moment-to-moment experience and less about maybe uh, touching on these these other topics. Um, I think flashing forward till now, um, indie games are doing that. You know, in Spades, it's 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 a big part of what differentiates indie games from some commercial games, and I and I've been really inspired to see how what indie games are and how they've grown. Um, so now I think it's really more about standing out uh, and finding ways, okay. How can you do that on maybe a large slightly larger scale or do something different in a way that can stand out with this giant flood of indie games and, and and games uh, you know, across mobile, across PC. So I think um that's kind of been the um the overall arc of the studio and the different challenges of of running it.
0: You no, know, that's really interesting. I you know, we were talking to uh jesper Jewell recently who's a scholar who looks at you know history of indie games and one of the things he talks about is that kind of like chart or that uh kind of movement in indie games away from primarily focusing on mechanics and kind of not just bringing back older mechanics but experimenting with kind of twists on mechanics and then into focusing more on the autobiographical and personal and then maybe more the political and it's just interesting to see your studio sort of at the forefront of that it kind of you know, even in your, uh, you know, one of your, I guess, slogans or mantras uh, is that you want to make memorable uh, and meaningful or meaningful and memorable games. And I, I guess I would ask what that means to you, not just as a kind of philosophical statement, but also is there a practical element to that Um, in terms of how you recruit, in terms of how you bring people um, on board as team members?
1: Yeah, it's interesting about the recruiting piece of it. Um, In terms of like the philosophical piece, I think it, like one of the things I think about a lot when I'm designing a game is like, what are these like memorable moments? What are the things that are going to stand out and stick with the player after they're done playing? And I thought a lot about, you know, towards that idea of making personal games. I, I wanted to build games that could create connections both while they're playing it. So they're, they're sort of learning and growing and thinking about a topic, but then there's something that will stick with them uh, afterwards. And, uh, I think the best games that that I remember have some quality of that, whether it's something sort of superficial um, that it just like, wow, that was just a great experience. There was a great social experience I had that sticks with me um, or there was something, whatever, maybe, maybe there's something transformational, like in, in a very ideal idealized sense, like maybe the player could have an experience, play it, and then walk away like a different or transform better person. And so I think you know, at the core, what we try to do is make games that are fun on the surface that really engage you, but then as you get deeper into them, maybe reveal some things that you're not as familiar with and may may stick with you. So I think that's philosophically what we've tried to do. And, you know, you could look at our various games with that where Hero Generations, for example, is a game that um, is this sort of roguelike, um, very quick, casual RPG type experience where every step you take is one year of your character's life and you're looking for a mate to settle down with and have a child, and then you can take control of that child and, and continue through, through these sort of uh, loops. And, you know, it's a very fun, like moment to moment experience. But as you go along, you start to realize different things about the topic, such as um, maybe I needed to, you know, invest a little bit more uh, for and plan and save for the future so that my future generations will have a better life, a better chance of being successful in the game and so forth. And so these types of things systematically that could maybe, maybe you don't think about, but that the game can reveal, um, I find really interesting. Um, and then, you know, with We Are the Caretakers, our new game, which I'm sure we'll talk about, um, you know, has elements of that as well with the the topic of um, anti-poaching. Um yeah, I feel like I got a little off track. Oh, you had the, the other question about um uh, the recruiting aspect of that, and I guess what I would say is that one thing I have found is having that sort of like studio philosophy, or maybe having that philosophy be the uh, or result in certain types of games that will attract certain types of developers who, uh, you know, they're not necessarily just here for the paycheck; they really care about making an impact on the games industry and making games that move people um, I found I found it to be helpful to attract really awesome people um to uh that maybe would not have otherwise wanted to work with a smaller game studio um, so I have found that to be an interesting side effect of the games we make uh, is that we put together really awesome teams uh with you know diverse people that uh, really um has made for some fun development experiences where we learn a lot from each other, just making the game, you know, as well.
0: That's great. And so in terms of studio size, do you have like a certain number of standing studio members besides you and Kate, and then kind of people you bring in, uh, and then how do you decide kind of what scale to keep the team at?
1: Yeah. So, um, from the start, we've actually been a remote studio, which I know has become, uh, much more, uh, common these days, um, for obvious reasons. But, um, so we have been able to kind of bring people on from all across the, you know, the country or the globe, even with, with our latest project. And, um, yeah, I, I've, uh, we, we, We've tried to structure things like from a project basis and what that has allowed us to do is bring in the right people for the current project and we can allow people to move on if they're not as interested or they can they can stay on with us and help develop what the next thing is. Um, so we, we've we tried in the past to to work on smaller projects that were more design focused that helped reduce sort of like the cost to make them, but hopefully... Uh, result in like highly replayable games uh, that can be accomplished by a small team. Uh, that has changed with We Are The Caretakers. So our our sort of standing team is still, you know, Kate and I uh, and a couple of uh, regular contributors, but we have grown to have uh, up to eight to 10 people on this last project. Um, and again, the most of those people were here for the the whole time, but we were able to bring in specialized folks to help us with you know, um, some of our world building, um, you know, some programming tasks and so forth. So we've we've tried to keep it flexible because our projects, you know, are very different. Uh, and I think that has served us well for the most part.
0: Yeah, it seems like, you know, when I'm doing interviews with any teams, one of the key uh, sort of viability tests is that kind of flexibility, mutability when it comes to the team, ability to move from development into pre-production without, you know, too heavy of a load on you and being able to kind of swivel from one thing to the next. So that's interesting to hear you talk about that. Um, It definitely seems like we are the caretakers, which I want to talk about in more detail in a moment. It seems like that's a kind of scale shift for you guys, like you're kind of scaling up uh, for that project. And I wonder what the decision behind that was. It's also the first time where it seems like mobile maybe is not like the key focus of development. And so what was behind that? Did that just feel like, okay, the studios had a few games come out, we're ready for this. Uh, Was there another uh, factor in that decision?
1: Yeah, I think there are a couple of factors. I think one is that we, you know, early on we were able to get a little bit of funding so in the past a lot of our games have been self-funded or with here generations we were able to do a kickstarter that was uh you know had a had a modest successful kickstarter um so some of it was you know okay we have some ambition and and we we have maybe uh, some additional resources so let's 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 allow ourselves to think a little bigger but um the i guess strategically you know from the studio standpoint was you know with the, the the last game I made before We Are the Caretaker's Brave Hand was like the smallest game I've ever made. It was a mobile sort of card game uh, solitaire variant, I guess, in a very loose sense of how to describe it. Um, and it was just really hard to, uh, in this sea of games that are released on mobile and, and, and just with, you know, I'm sure you've, you've talked about this with other guests before, but you know, just how many games are released on Steam every year and so forth. It's just, it's become a very different marketplace to go into. So, um, scaling up, uh, you know, in a way was a way to possibly stand out or, or, or do some things to, um, yeah help help us kind of rise above the fold and we we think we do that from a design standpoint but i also felt that you know uh, a 3d uh game um uh, a slightly larger scope things like that um might help us uh reach an audience where where maybe some of these smaller games would be easier to forget so that was that was sort of the like the the core thing uh I guess to to start outside of like the design considerations of of what a bigger game means.
0: Has there been a kind of PR and marketing shift on that level too? Obviously, those considerations are becoming bigger and bigger. I just I think of, for example, like Twin Motion, who made Dead Cells, and the way in which actually they kind of integrated an American uh, PR and marketing. Uh, person into the development process from the very beginning when it was an early access, which is, you know, it's like, that's a move that I don't think every developer would be comfortable with having that direct kind of back and forth between an independent marketing uh, agent. But at the same time, like you're saying, there's this kind of need to navigate a market that's, if not saturated, at least really, really crowded, whether or not we're talking about that Steam or the Nintendo eShop or whatever.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There, there were, uh, there were a lot of firsts for, for us as a studio. And one of those things uh, was working with a, with a PR team. We actually worked with Stride PR, um, who has been fantastic, um, just helping us navigate, you know, not only just how to how to um market and talk about uh this unique game we've built, but also how to do it during a pandemic and and all the the different challenges we've had. So it's been great working with a partner there. The other thing, I mean, we, we tried a lot of new things, like we we were at we had booths at PAX East uh, in the past, and we've we've uh, participated in a couple of like these digital showcases and, and actually paid people to help us make trailers instead of me trying to figure out how to do it with a with video editing software. Um, so yeah, there was definitely a little bit of thought of uh, ahead of time of like, yes, we we actually need to like treat marketing and PR as like a just as valid a piece of, of making a game as, as any other discipline um, this time around. That's great.
0: Uh... So I want to talk, uh, about we are the caretakers, which I've, you know, had the pleasure of playing some in early access, uh, for the past week or so. Uh, and maybe to start off, we can just have you describe a little bit what you think the game is about, uh, what the key mechanics are for you, uh, just what the game is. So we are the caretakers.
1: Yeah. So we are the caretakers is a, uh, Afrofuturist sci-fi squad management RPG, um, or maybe a, we we like to also call it like a roster management RPG, not unlike something like an XCOM or Darkest Dungeon, where you have this collection of characters with different classes, different traits um, that are trying to protect a planet and the endangered wildlife specifically um, on that planet. Um, by going out into the field and protecting them from these sort of sci-fi poachers and eventually uh, you you quickly learn there's also an alien uh, element to the game as well. So you're kind of this like secret protecting uh, group that goes out and, and uh, is trying to protect um, on a number of levels. So you have this HQ that you're at where you're able to take your roster and form them into squads of six. Uh, then when you go into missions you uh, send multiple squads out into the field to scout, um, look for animals, meet with communities, uh, find items, etc. And then eventually, when you do confront other poacher uh, units, uh, you then confront them in sort of a turn-based uh, RPG system. So we've we've tried to uh, build a game that that uh, maps on a larger scale what goes into um, conservation and uh you know anti-poaching uh specifically and so we started from the space of real world inspirations of uh conservationists and 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 rangers and and scientists and kind of worked from their experiences to kind of uh try to put in our own sort of unique sci-fi way um yeah what goes into that that (laughs) day-to-day
0: that's great and uh there's a lot to unpack there but maybe we can start with sort of the kind of broad thematic uh elements here which is one not just an environmentalist game or an environmentally focused game uh which is actually something we've been writing a lot on the site about but also more specifically uh a game about poaching or an anti-poaching game Uh, although an anti-poaching game that wants to actually think about why poaching occurs as well from what i can tell uh so How did you guys come to that? Yeah, it, it, the game actually started,
1: um, from, uh, from that idea of like, how do we build a game around like, like what would a, what would a game that explores anti-poaching, uh, be. And the reason we chose that topic was, um, actually a friend, uh, that I've kept in touch with forever from, uh, college, uh, Michigan state university, um, happened, you know, 15 years later or so out of college, you know, he's running his own, um, company that does like AI software. And he reached out to me and said, Hey, you know, why, why aren't there any games that like give to charity and like, but that also deal with a topic, you know, and he, one of his AI projects was actually about like building AI to kind of track or, or like anticipate poacher movement. And and so that that was like his like PhD research that he had been doing. So he happened to bring that up and he had contacts with various organizations doing that. And I was kind of like, yeah, that is really interesting. Um, and so we kind of just batted that idea back or back and forth and, and, you know, from his connections kind of helped, okay, let's, let's maybe make this real and and try to find, you know, a little bit of funding and so forth. So it really started from just this conversation with my friend and and trying to combine our two loves of like, can we make these like meaningful games and, you know, his, his background. uh, And and that's really where, where it started.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. Uh, And so was this friend also involved in the development of the game or mostly just conversations at the initial part of it?
1: No, he's he's actually so he eventually became part of the uh, helping with some of that, you know, initial seed funding. And he is uh, actually, you know, as he's been kind of advising, also doing a little bit of programming and just kind of, you know, just us being friends, it's but it's it's not like, uh, not difficult to kind of loop him in and and give him a reason to contribute. So um, yeah, we've definitely benefited from his, uh, his AI programming as well.
0: Oh, that's really great. So one of the things that I just wanted to flag... Yeah, his is name, that,
1: I'm, I'm sorry, his, his name is yeah. James Peta. I should probably say his name. Yeah, yeah
0: no, there we go. I hope he has that. James Peta. Great. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Scott. Um, so one of the things I just wanted to note about the game is that 10% of the revenue uh, is going to Wildlife Conservation Network. And it sounds like that was something that was that kind of baked into the beginning of... Uh, the development process. In other words, the idea was already there. And you mentioned seed funding. Is that so? Is that a back and forth relationship? Were you getting kind of grant funding uh, from conservation institutes, or how did that work?
1: No, yeah, we're not. We're not funded by the uh, conservation organizations. They, uh, we, j- we just got sort of it, fundings from all over. But it's just you know like angel investors, basically from from oh, contacts and so forth. Yeah, um, was was that uh, starting with James's you know connections and going from there. Um, but yes, baked into the, the initial kind of design talks was, yeah, we would love to make, make a game that is deeply about a topic and then, uh, directly contribute to kind of make an impact there. And so, um, we started with, yes, we'd like a charity partner. And then through lots of conversations, uh, we eventually got in touch with wildlife, uh, conservation network, WCN, uh, and they kind of became our official, uh, Partner. So yeah, we're, we're giving 10% of the net revenue from the, from the game to, to them. And specifically they are directing it because, uh, the, the main species in the game is something that's called the Ron, which is sort of this amalgamation of rhino behavior and elephants and a few other species. Um, but we, so we are, um, our, our contribution is going to their Rhino Recovery Fund. And we're, we've been starting to post a little bit about some of the specific work they're doing and some cool videos of them out in the field. So uh, it's been fun to kind of work in both directions. So we were able to kind of take people who are interested in in the environmental and in conservation and um, animal protection side and bring them in and say, hey, here's this cool game about something you love. And then help game players. Just we've made a fun, you know, uh, what we think polished uh, strategy game that can maybe reveal and bring some game players into a topic that they may not normally be thinking about. So it's kind of been fun to kind of uh, educate in both directions.
0: Yeah, that's great. I appreciate that term education there too. And and uh, one of the things that I think you point out there is when we think about the way a game might educate us, we sometimes just think about the message of the game or what the mechanics of the game can show us. But it's interesting to think about the kind of metagame, the surrounding it, the kind of platform that a game is built upon, which in this case includes not only charitable uh, donations, but also, like you said, a kind of uh, message campaign as well, which is really interesting to see. And we'll make sure we link to that uh, as well um, in the podcast. Uh, so one of the notable features of the game, and it's actually really striking and stand out right from the beginning, is that Afro-futurist aesthetic or art style artistic tradition that it's embedded in Uh, The traditions obviously become very popular, uh, not just with the success of something like uh, the Black Panther film, but also even before that with I think f- everything from uh, Janelle Monae's music videos like For Many Moons, uh, Nidi Akurifer's mm-hmm. fiction uh, like the Binti trilogy, uh, Naila Hopkinson's work back in the 90s, N.K. Jemison's Nebula and Hugo award-winning fiction. Uh, one could go on and I won't <laughs> keep going on but what drew you to that environment uh, and what made you decide to do something that has been done before uh it's not absolutely new uh thinking of the film the space is the place for example uh but to have an alien setting as well as uh to embed afrofuturism because there could be a kind of like dissonance there but i think it works in the game and i'm curious what brought you to do that
1: yeah okay so um i'll start with um the you know how sort of afrofuturism ultimately be kind of became our setting in world um so from that early kind of conversations you know there were kind of two things we we knew it's like um one is that we we didn't want to make a game that was like a one to one realistic setting you know in in real places and with um you know real people we we wanted to find some sort of fantasy setting or our own world to create sort of a, an abstraction layer to like help help people get into uh the game without kind of feeling like, okay, I'm going to be preached to. There's, there's, there's something here. Um, and I guess the second part of it, as we were talking with folks is just the, the reality of the, uh, one, most of the landscapes that, um, where a lot of this work was being done was, uh, in Africa or, or we also, um, visited Nepal, but there, there are lots of, um, places around the world like that. And a lot of the people doing the work were people of color. So, um, ultimately um, we just felt like it was the most authentic kind of representation of what we were doing and, and wanted uh, to make sure that that game kind of honored the real world people um, that we were so inspired by. Um, and then so, I guess, lastly, um, uh, very early on, uh, our two main collaborators, um, our narrative director, Xavier um, Nelson Jr. Uh, and Anthony Jones, uh, our art director, came on uh, and really from their uh sensibilities and just their perspectives uh really helped build uh the early concepts that just kind of leaned right into this and we were all obviously at that time inspired by black panther and and uh neti uh, works in particular uh on the narrative side um so uh so yeah we just uh, there's a synthesis of like again our research and the the strengths of our team to kind of land on this uh kind of unique setting for a game um yeah, and then um I guess the what was the second part of your question? I was very interested that. In was I just, just yeah,
0: sorry, there was it was a bit dense. Um, <laughs> but no, it's great. And I want to come back actually to some of the collaborators um, in a moment. Yeah. But one of the questions I had was just bring it into an alien setting. Obviously, right. you know, uh we could look at Binti or something as precedent for that, even the old film, uh Space is the place and space travels involved there, as you probably tell from the title. Uh but why the decision to do that? Because you could imagine a version of this game yeah, that is in yeah. fact set on Earth, right? Is set in Africa, and sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, but you chose not to do that. I'm just curious what the thinking behind that was.
1: Yeah, so I think there's, um, there's again, there's an inspired thing and then there's just like a design mechanical thing. Um, so on the design side of it, um, I think we really wanted to just create like an overall like mystery and something that immediately reveals like, hey, there's a bigger world out here that we need to consider versus just our little bubble, like a literal bubble in the game. You have this energy barrier (laughs) that's protecting your society uh, that comes down very early on. And we just wanted uh, a mechanism of like a a mystery and this like greater presence that you need to like figure out about. Um, And to us, what this was modeling was how like, I think when you think of poaching, uh, you kind of think of the ground level, right? You think of uh, someone going out usually with a gun to try to shoot an animal. Uh, and you think, well, maybe it's just this person is evil and they're, they're out here, you know, doing this or maybe, uh, less evil. They're just trying to feed their family and they don't care about the bigger picture or what have you. But really what we were so fascinated by was that like, there's all these outside organizations that are driving the demand for poaching. So there's, uh, you know, these, these markets for wildlife trade, illegal wildlife trade that are not based in the areas at all where the poaching is happening. So it it might be, you know, a lot, you know, China, Vietnam, there, there are these, these known sort of like uh, markets driving the demand for this. And so we kind of created this very abstract idea of like, there's this other um, uh, thing out there that's driving the demand. You don't know why. And they're not from where, where we're at. And so it was just sort of this way to like build a sci-fi mechanism to kind of represent that like outside interest and demand. Um, and so we, we just thought that was like a cool synthesis uh, of like this real world, um, you know, research we had done with, how do we convert that into this like fun sci-fi thing?
0: No, that's really interesting. It makes me think of, you know, um in my day job as an English teacher, uh, one of the terms that we talk about a lot is defamiliarization or estrangement, like trying to get people to see things from a different angle right. by introducing some kind of swerve in it, right? And so it's really easy to say poaching is bad and have a message where poaching is bad, right? It's harder to get, folks to look at something in a nuanced way and sometimes the way you have to do that is kind of shake them out of their usual kind of everyday routines and so introducing an alien setting and asking you to look at things from a different perspective is a really good way of doing that it seems um it also makes the game maybe more fun right because if yeah the game's message is just <laughs> this is bad and this is good and there you go yeah and um, i should have led
1: with aliens are cool and the specifically the designs of the aliens, you know, by Anthony Jones uh, are really cool. So we just thought that looked cool and fit fit all the other things I just talked about.
0: <laughs> yeah, I love the aesthetic. Makes me think of some combination of, you know, some of the artwork you see in the Black Panther comics with uh, some kind of modernist artwork too, like French modernist artwork, especially when they got really into kind of African masks and the like. Um, uh, and yeah, I did want to just kind of like call out that part of what it seems like you guys did with the scaling up, for this particular game especially with the afro futurist aesthetic is you really i think emphasized it seems to me at least uh diversity in your recruiting effort because you know you've got a really diverse team working on this Xavier uh Nelson uh who i think just had a game announced for the play date um which which really which, cool. which one he's got he's got 5 games yeah <laughs> oh geez, wow um all right 5 games for the play date yeah, that's yeah, excellent yeah. um Anthony Jones and so it, it's really commendable to see an effort there to kind of uh Bring forward uh, developers of color, and um, you know, kind of also emphasize gender diversity in the team. So I just wanted to highlight that um, for folks. Uh,
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I I mean, absolutely was was a focus for us, and we were we were lucky to find such amazing uh, collaborators who believed in the project, and um, you know, were at the core of developing it.
0: Yeah. Uh, So one of the things I wanted to kind of just with you about is you know there's been a tide of squad based tactics games lately which is you know as somebody who i just have a particular taste for those kinds of games uh it's been both wonderful and overwhelming to see you know every few months now a couple more of these games coming out uh i think this one distinguishes itself not just in its thematics but also even in its gameplay mechanics which are i think tightly related uh you use the term protection a couple of times, and, and I actually do get the sense that what I'm not trying to do is eliminate the enemy. I'm actually trying to protect uh an endangered species, and combat is organized around that. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you've tried to distinguish the gameplay uh of this game from other uh squad-based tactics games uh that have been coming out, whether it's a darkest dungeon or a gear's tactics or Excom, Chimera Squad, or whatever.
1: Yeah, so I would say um, the two main differentiators would be um, at like the basic level. Like basic level, like not even in the actual turn-based combat. Like your focus, like you mentioned, is about protecting the animals and not about you know racking up as many kills as you can and, and growing your experience. So it's it's focused on that goal and in the in the same. Way uh, the poaching units have no care for you at all. They care about the animals as well. So you're not really worried about protecting your your characters. You have to make a choice to insert yourself uh, between the animal and and the um, you know and, and these poachers. And so it just creates a unique dynamic uh, where. Uh, the way that you move and, and choose your tactics are a little bit different because your goals, both on your side and on like the opposing side, are different. Um in the actual turn-based combat, we we wanted to create something that was familiar but also different. So uh if you've seen any type of like JRPG or traditional sort of squad setup, um, you should know like the basic moves and mechanics and, and things like that. But um fundamentally uh we shifted things from like trying to take, take out your opponent and just trying to like deescalate, uh, at, in the way that your squad makeup allows for. Um, so your goal is to wear down, uh, the enemy characters either on their physical stamina or their mental will. Uh, and each, you know, different characters have differing abilities that allow you to target those two different stats. And then once they're at zero or a critical state, you can then use different sort of finishing moves. And those moves uh, are very different than your traditional uh, ones. So, like the the primary one is that you can detain someone and actually bring them back into your headquarters. So after the mission, you can have a little conversation with them and figure out how to resolve that. And based upon who they are um, and what they've done, they have different resolution options with different strategic choices and so forth. So, um, and then there's you know more aggressive options where you can kind of wound someone and that moves them out of combat, um, but you might take a reputation hit to that. Um, And uh, I guess, uh, you know, counterbalancing, to make all of those goals work, right, of de-escalating, we have these uh, stats that sort of uh, are affected by every action you take. Um, So at at the like meta level, you have a reputation score. So if you're too aggressive, that reputation might go down. Um, If you're more diplomatic, that might go up. But sometimes, depending on who the... um, you know who the uh, opposing unit is and what the people of the area think of them that might change so you really have to take into account at all times the consequences of your 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 actions um and so we've just tried to build a system around this kind of unique dynamic of like going through and just using your best most powerful ability is not always the the optimal choice and i found that very interesting um and, you know, I think through early access, we're still working out, you know, how to make that as interesting as possible and, and expose as much of that. But um, I think at the heart, that's kind of what we've tried to do to, to um, differentiate.
0: Right. you know, Two things that stood out to me, uh, or maybe three, actually, three things that stood out to me uh, that distinguish it as well, um, just to highlight it for folks is one, there's a kind of real-time strategy uh, quality to the overhead map in the game. So you're, You know, it seems like there's three sort of main parts of the game. There is you're at HQ, shifting between missions. uh, So at headquarters, recruiting, uh, working through a research tree that busts your characters or your squad in different ways. Uh, You're in the field, an overhead map, in which you're actually controlling in real time, or not exactly real time, but in accelerated real time. uh, You know, at first, just one squad, but you can actually have multiple squads Uh, And in fact, have to at certain instances in order to complete the mission in a timely fashion. uh, This really produces a sense of urgency that on the one hand really threw me off at first. But on the other hand, I was like, oh, this makes perfect sense. I'm trying to stop poachers. And once I got the hang out of it, it produced this kind of uh, narrative tension that I really uh, enjoyed because I had to think about the clock. And you can pause it just to be clear. You can pause the clock and think about what's going on. But it still has that tension. Okay, where am I going to put? this squad, where I'm gonna move this squad. I need to take down these defenses first in order to get at this boss. Uh, and then finally, there's an auto battle uh, system that uh, has some different options that you can click on, two main sets of options, uh, who you wanna target, how aggressively you wanna target, what skills you wanna focus on when you're targeting. So I'm wondering, maybe just kind of reversing the order, what made you put an auto battler in. what was the decision process I'd love it by the way yeah uh but I wonder what made you decide to do that
1: yeah so the the answer may take some explanation depending on your familiarity but um so this game stealthily ab- among all the other things I've talked about about the inspirations is I've always wanted to make sort of a modern version of a game called ogre battle uh there was ogre battle march of the black queen and then there was ogre battle 64 for the Nintendo 64 a little while after that but I played the heck out of um, that game. You know, I was obsessed with it. Um, I know all of the, you know, the secret characters and all, you know, all the things that you could imagine about it. So um, that game really stuck with me, and it it's a big influence in a lot of the games I've made. And this, it just so happened that this uh, topic, uh, as I was, you know, exploring it, just like, wow, this really maps to like uh, ogre battle. So this is a great sort of framework to start with. So, um, in that game, uh, it's sort of more of a traditional JRPG. Um, you're building this rebellion to overthrow a, uh, you know, like these mages who have taken over your, uh, your society. And then you're slowly kind of, you know, recruiting people from the neighboring towns to, to grow kind of your keep your capabilities and, and your, your capacity. And, um, And it just had this, this squad, the same sort of squad building dynamic. And it did have the, the, uh, sort of RTS and, um, auto battle components to it. So, uh, we kind of started from there and then branched off in the ways that made more sense for our game and, and differentiated it, uh, in terms of when we first started. So, so the, the short answer is that's, that's where a lot of that came from. But, um, the auto battle piece specifically fits with our game because. Uh, although you can control the individual actions, uh, we we did want the player to kind of take the broad view of like, okay, if you don't want to be in the minutiae of the tactical elements, you don't have to, you can stay at the overall thing of like, okay, I've set up this squad with these capabilities and we'll let them act based upon those choices I've made in preparing them. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I just It just felt like uh, a a way to play the game that made sense um but we also wanted to give players that sort of uh fine grain control if they wanted it as well
0: yeah i appreciated it especially because you i mean it pauses between turns until you do have the ability to kind of rotate your focus uh and rotate what you want to emphasize in combat uh or in diplomacy for that matter and you know, so you don't have to get lost in the weeds if you don't want to. And there's quite a number of skills that you do have to navigate. And so that's a way of kind of stepping back, like you said, and being able to, you know, for me, I think my main focus was how do I most efficiently scoop up uh, some of the more interesting resources on the overhead map? How do I, you know, diffuse some traps, uh, raise my reputation through things like that? And yeah, I suppose the next thing I want to talk about is that reputation and diplomacy system, which, you know, when you you know, just to kind of reiterate, uh, what you were saying earlier, Scott, you know, you hear f- a finishing move, finishing move here does not involve Scorpion pulling out somebody's no. heart. <laughs> you know, there's no, yeah. you, you know, it's a Mortal Kombat style, finish him. Uh, instead actually usually what involves is detention of, uh, an antagonist. And then you go back to headquarters and you can do different things. You know, I've, a bribed uh, person, uh, and if you bribe them with a certain amount, it hits your reputation a certain amount as opposed to another. Uh, You can bribe them more to have it affect your reputation less, which I liked. Um, (laughs) And then on the other hand, you can recruit them, which will actually hit your reputation more, but on the other hand, will also help build your squad out. And so I wonder if there are any elements of that that I'm missing in the reputation and diplomacy system, uh... And, you know, I'm still relatively early in the game. So I'm just wondering if you talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. The, the, the way that, uh, again, the reputation was like kind of a component of Ogre Battle, but it really rung true when we um, started talking with people doing the work because you, they're out there operating um, with limited resources in these giant landscapes Uh, potentially put in dangerous situations and you don't always have the optimal uh, setup to always make the the right choice. So sometimes it's like, hey, if I don't like get a little more aggressive right now, like this animal is going to die, you know, but that will look really bad with the local government or the local people because hey, that guy is like the brother of the guy who's like the mayor of the town, <laughs> you know, whatever. there's all always like these interpersonal community dynamics that you always have to manage on top of it. So I just really like this idea that, you know, you have to make choices between the short term, my goal is to protect these animals, but long term over the course of the campaign, which the game has, um, you need to take into account like the, the will of the people, quote unquote, or the you know, the how this is going to look because that will have long term effects. And so, I guess if there's anything you're missing, or just a component I want to reveal, is that your reputation affects everything in the game as you go along. So, it affects the recruits you get in the uh, we call the atrium in the HQ. So, you'll have uh, better or worse, depending on your strategy, um, people to add to your roster. Um, and then uh, it affects the types of Uh, opposing poacher groups you'll see. So you may see uh, more aggressive poacher units because you've been more aggressive. Um, You might see certain goals um, appear or not um, later in the game uh, and and so forth. So just um, there's the micro things that you mentioned, like, you know, how, how certain choices will change your reputation value, but then your current reputation value has a lot of wide ranging effects on the game that, um, are pretty interesting as you get going.
0: That's great. And, you know, one of the things that I think you're highlighting there is that in most tactics games, most of these squad-based tactics games, you have a really nice delineation between friend and enemy, self and other, you know, whether it's the hordes of Gears tactics, the aliens of XCOM until Chimera squad, or, uh, you know, the, sort of Lovecraftian demons in Darkest Dungeon, but here it's not so cut and dry, just as it isn't in real life when we're talking about poaching, right? You're often talking about community members who are meeting, as you put it, a market demand. And especially in areas that are affected by poverty, it's hard to begrudge people attempting to just get by. Even as on the other hand, you want to, of course, respect uh, the kind of biodiversity of the landscape. You want to protect species that can't protect themselves. and so it's nice that your game just throws you in the thick of it and lets us experience to some degree these kind of complex moral challenges that are involved in conservation, Uh, where sometimes it's maybe it's not a zero-sum game, but on the other hand, there are costs to decisions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the earliest takeaways you can get from the game is just this idea that yeah, the these I I've tried my best to avoid using this term, but like these are not enemy units. They're not others. You 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 have to quickly realize that like we're all in this together, even if you don't realize it, um, type of type of a, a dynamic. And so um yeah, I, I think that's at the core of the system is like to remove the the clarity, I guess, that you get with like good and evil in a lot of games and making that a little bit more of a gray area. Uh, And and to that point, like, you know, much of your um, future caretakers as you go through the squads, uh, go through the campaign, excuse me, um, come from these, quote unquote, enemy units that you've encountered um, through detaining and recruiting and so forth. So, um, yeah, I I find that to be a really interesting part of the game and I'm glad you sort of um, pulled that out.
0: So the round, am I pronouncing that correctly? Round?
1: Ron, I guess, but yeah, it's 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 a made-up word, so you can pronounce whatever you'd like. <laughs>
0: there you go. So the Ron, uh, which kind of look like rhinoceroses to me, but not solely so. Um, kind of a amalgamation of different megafauna. Uh you know, they're the central object of caretaking in the game. So I'm wondering what inspired both their visual and mechanical design and how did you imagine them fitting into this environment. And I guess how much of an ecology you've had the design surrounding them or how much of the kind of imaginary ecology, of the game is built around them.
1: Yeah. We, we, we knew pretty early on that we didn't really have the the budget and s- scope of a team to like t- make a ton of species. So um, we really wanted to focus on a small set and, and, and it ended up being one for early access. Um, and so we thought hard about, you know, what, what gameplay needed and then what would be um the the best species to kind of go with um we liked uh sort of rhinos as a base because they're this kind of like big majestic animal (laughs) that uh you you know you want to protect they're also uh, not a predator species so they're much easier to to maybe love on the surface um but they their design is a mixture of i would say uh uh, rhino behavior elephant behavior and um sort of tiger behavior in, in, in different ways um and we wanted that the, it mattered that they were a big species because a big part of what we learned uh where a lot of the conflict comes from is human wildlife conflict so what happens when habitat is destroyed and people are much closer to the animals uh you get natural conflicts that you know even if they're not a predator species like the animals start eating farmers crops or they start destroying property or whatever it might be. And that creates, uh, other avenues where people might try to, um, kill or, or attack these endangered animals. So by them being this bigger threat that could cause damage um, you know, that, I guess that was, that was another key consideration to their design. And then I just let Anthony run with it and he came up with an awesome design. Um, I think one reviewer or a preview, uh, described them as like a mix of a rhino and knuckles from, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, <laughs> cause they have, they have, do these, that? they have this giant furry, uh, spikes coming out of them as well. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think they're a fun design, but they're also kind of functional for all those reasons I just talked
0: about. And is there a functional ecology in the game? It's still sort of digging into the systems, but I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I, I think in the early access state, it's it's
1: fairly basic, but basically the animals um, react to the units. So they will kind of like run away from, from, from both the player and um, the, uh, you know, the, the poaching units, depending on how they behaved. Um, they do have uh, a need for food. Uh, and so you, they, they move around the environment to where the, the food sources are. So that can, again, create natural conflicts. So like kind of systematically, you know, they either move to where there's like fruit trees, or if they can't find that they'll go to the farms. And that's, that's where we kind of get this mechanical representation of what I just talked about. Um, and then uh, eventually though, um, we want to play more with the habitat piece of it. So. Um, right now they can kind of be shrouded or, or hidden from poachers when they're in forested territories. Um, one, one thing we haven't talked about is that the kind of RTS map is broken up into these territories. And so each of those territories do have a functional component that sometimes affect the animals, but we would love to play with things, um, like fires that destroy habitat or ways to, um, clean up territories that are destroyed to make more space for the animals. So there's not a, there's not a huge dynamic, uh, ecology, um, at the moment, but that's something we're really excited to build out as we go through early access.
0: Right. I could imagine that a kind of like split in the tech tree or something between on the one hand, developing your squad on the other hand, developing the ability to sort of maintain and what caretake for the environment as well as for the species that inhabit it. It's really yeah, interesting. Exactly. And so maybe, uh, last question about the content of the game uh but so the campaign itself is divided into i believe they're called eras uh and i just i wonder what that means in terms of the organization of the game uh and do these eras correspond to events or sort of processes that change the game world um do they present decisions a player has to negotiate uh, there's some of these you know, levels that you'll go through. In fact, don't you take you into an overall map and said they're kind of involve a decision tree or a dialogue in which you have to negotiate some kind of conflict or diplomacy. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the campaign structure as it stands in early access.
1: Yeah, I, the era's idea was, was, uh, I guess there's kind of a couple things. So the first that we just wanted to group missions thematically. So we wanted to have, you know, a the, a very clear connection between the missions that are grouped in an era and maybe have them based around certain gameplay themes so that we could um, allow players to maybe like invest invest a little bit in certain strategic layouts of their um, squads, So they didn't have to do a ton of like over deck building or adjusting. So when an era ends and a new one starts, it's maybe a point to like reevaluate your strategy and kind of go from there. Um, the other thing is, it allows for like a transition point between things, to so where we can have big, bigger things happen, um, both at like the narrative level and mechanically. Um, we have some more interesting like era. We call, we'll call them like end of era events that we want to add into the game as we go through early access. But that was kind of the impetus there of like it's a reset point. You know, maybe you know your your raw population can grow a little bit uh, because of an event or maybe a major thing can happen that you know has a wide ranging effect on your characters uh so that was the other piece of it um in terms and then just in terms of the structure of we have these like field missions then we have what we call story missions which are those sort of narrative uh dialogue choice driven ones we wanted to have more of these like big moral choice um moments in the game but we were finding it challenging to do that in the field when your focus is like okay i'm trying to manage all these things and i don't really like want to sit and contemplate, um, you know, this like deep choice for a while. So by pulling that out, um, we both kind of were able to like, uh, increase the number of missions you get in an era, but also leave space to like, let you think and and really, uh, make those choices. So, um, that was just kind of a structural thing we, we discovered where, um, we could kind of get the narrative punch that we wanted, but not detract or extend, um, our field missions too much.
0: Right. Uh, And so, you you talk a little bit about some of the different things you're thinking about doing uh, long term and early access, maybe adding new species, new kinds of narrative events, uh, delineating the errors more. Uh, But what made you decide to go into early access with the game? I mean, I'm thankful I get to play it earlier uh, and I actually like playing early access games because you get to see kind of under the hood, you get to see where it goes. Uh, I think I'm playing, I don't know how many early access games right now. And so, uh, but I know it can also be frustrating, both I imagine for developers and for players. There's a lot of push and pull that that involves. Uh, Feedback can be a great thing. Feedback can also be overwhelming, um, depending on how many sources you're getting it from and how many directions are pulling you in. And so I'm wondering both what made you decide to go into it and how's the process been so far?
1: Yeah, early access, this is actually the first time we've done an early access game. We. We did do a Kickstarter for Hero Generation, so it kind of had an early access feel to it that we liked. Um, But um, yeah, so it was a little bit of an experiment for the company, Um, but it was primarily driven by like, it was just time to get wider player feedback because we do have a game that has lots of moving parts, different layers. And we, we had done some play testing in smaller doses, but we really did just want to find out like what are player resp- players responding to? Like, should we invest way more in the narrative campaign or are people just looking for more like the systemic stuff? Um, should Should we focus more on auto battle versus, you know, the direct choices, what have you? So it was really at a point where like, we felt like we had a game that people would like, but we really wanted to know kind of what people really responded to the most so we can invest in the right areas. Um, and then I guess just, you know, this is maybe a, a more boring uh, thing, uh, but there were just a lot of technical components that needed a wider player base to get into. So seeing how, um, you know, 4K resolution breaks our game or, or uh, you know, uh, testing out our localizations for for different languages for the text, you know, and so forth. We just we needed a space to get more players, get the game out there, but also make sure we we could um get everything right once we get to that that 1.0 launch eventually.
0: So that makes sense. I mean, Q&A is going to be expensive. Uh and when you're a small team, you know, and you're doing a bigger scale game that's going to be on, I mean, the PC's one platform so called, but it's really you know, a lot of different systems, a lot of, you know, especially now with people being in transition towards 4K and uh let alone 12K, uh yeah. you know, it complicates things. Uh, Is there a 12K? Oh man, I've been in a, I've been- I don't deep know, in denial, I but. mean, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like with the, you know, when you're talking about the like PS5s and Series Xs, Series Xs now, they're yeah. talking about like, you know, getting up to 120 Hertz and it's just like, whose TV even supports that? <laughs> yeah. What am I supposed to be doing here? Um, I'm not buying a new TV for a console I can't even get anyway uh, but in any case has the experience been good so far? Have you feel like you've been getting the feedback you needed?
1: Yeah I mean it's I would say there's been pros and cons um, I mean I think the main thing is um, yeah I don't, I, we, we haven't had a huge as much of a pickup as I would have hoped for in terms of like the groundswell but we have we do have a nice player community the reviews have been great Like uh, my experience on Steam has not always been this way, where you get you know positive, uh, constructive feedback, uh, and so it's been great. We just we happen to have found the all the nice people on Steam, (laughs) so I'm happy about that. Um, And yeah, we we've learned a lot, and we've been able to um, address a lot of the technical issues, and we have been able to identify like I think a lot of people unanimously love the um like the poacher detaining and management system and those choices so we really want to balance that add more variety and, and and make that like a more core part of the game and we wouldn't have known that 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 was such a a unique thing um that that maybe the players have have let us know so there have been things like discoveries like that that have been really great um but yeah i'm, I'm excited to kind of um you know, we, we've kind of regrouped after three years of development. Um, we've got uh, kind of our first major uh, early access update planned for later this month. I don't know when this podcast is going out, but we'll be working on that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's been going great uh, from that standpoint. We've got like a clear roadmap, clarity and what we need to do to, to get the game to where we want it to be. Um, so, so yeah, overall, it's been a good experience.
0: Excellent. So last question uh, and to get a little broader about you know, you guys and the industry and just what you see uh, specifically the kind of indie landscape as right now. So I suppose, you know, the best way to ask this would be just uh, what do you see uh, as some of the possibilities for indie studios uh, in the current industry, not just challenges, but also opportunities opportunities. Uh, And do you see any studios besides your own that are kind of embodying that or they're pursuing directions that you find really fascinating in terms of indie game development?
1: Yeah, I think there are a lot of interesting trends right now that are really positive for indie developers. Um, I think what we're seeing are some of the like um, service-based platforms that are out there now. So like the Apple Arcades, the Game Pass, those types of things. I think. Are, you know, although they're curated, you know, they're really um tailored to allow the types of traditional uh indie games to kind of thrive. And so I'm really excited about you know what designing directly for something like that um would be like. Um and I think indie should be looking to those services not as like um in in a fearful sense. I think I think there's a one way to look at that where like it's okay, it's it's accelerating the race to the bottom uh so we're not gonna be able to make any money but i think it's a way to get a lot more people to play like unique quirky games like we are the caretakers potentially um although i don't i i uh unfortunately don't think we have anything like that lined up currently but i think that there are games like that uh that maybe, like on the surface you're like wow there's a lot of things i like here but i don't know if i'm ready to invest you know 20 30 dollars in this but i'd love to give it a try and i think there's it's a great way for like indie gems to get uh, um noticed. So I'm really excited about that. Um I'm also excited to see some of the platforms lowering their their fees, which is fantastic, uh, like on mobile and other other places. Um, but yeah, I I I am optimistic that there's a lot more space for um smaller to mid-sized developers. Um, and then in terms of like inspiring um developers or other studios I look towards, there, there's so many, um, out there doing cool things. Um, you know, I think of my, my friend Spry Fo- at Spry Fox, they're working on a game called, they just made a game called cozy grove, um, mm-hmm. which is a great example of just what I was talking about of a game that, uh, you know, has, was fit perfectly for a service like that, that maybe, um, would have had a harder time, you know, being sold for 20 bucks somewhere. Um, and I I also look to a lot of like the bigger studios. Like I I still at my heart like look get excited for, you know, whatever um gen design, you know, the creators of you know, Shadow of the Colossus and all that, or what, what are they up to? You know, I I'm still looking at those like big uh creative risk takers out there. Um I I I hope that those games can get
0: funded and you know get made more. I think that is where something like a game pass and those kinds of services are producing this space for maybe what you could call double a games sometimes right or at least something that breaks the mold of the standard triple a shooter or third person action game um, which are wonderful i love playing them but at the same time they're certainly not the only thing i want to exist thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us this was really enlightening and a lot of fun
1: yeah i agree thanks so much for having me Uh, it was it was my pleasure